All right, let's take our Bibles out. We're going to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we left off talking about the resurrection. If you remember the beginning of chapter 15, he talked about the prominence of the gospel. It's a first thing issue. The gospel including both the death and the resurrection of Christ. And then last week we looked at the proof of the resurrection, how they had eyewitness account after eyewitness account of people that saw Jesus Christ alive again after He was dead. Well, today we're going to focus on then the meaning of all this. What exactly does the resurrection mean in our lives? We're going to start in verse 12. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead, if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. You know, this week, I don't know if you have followed it much, but we have a possible new member of the Supreme Court that is being interviewed by the Senate. And as we have known for quite some time, the Biden made a distinction that at this nominee to the Supreme Court, that it had to meet two qualifications. It had to be a black woman to occupy the next bench or fill the next spot on the Supreme Court. Well, I found it interesting this week as we watched that one of the questions that she was asked by a senator was, can you define what a woman is to me? And she neglected to define it, though she said that she herself is a woman and her mother is a woman, but she declined the opportunity to identify what a woman is. And then the media and stuff took that and ran their different directions with it. And uh, some people's reaction to it was simply this. They said, well, when you're on the Supreme Court and handling cases, a case never really comes down to one dictionary definition of any particular word. And so it's really not all that important. Uh, other people's reaction to that was, 
you've got to be kidding me. Do we really think that with some of these uh, athletic events and things like that and talking about what's happening with guys participating in girls' sports and, and those kind of things, that this isn't going to make its way to the Supreme Court at some time? Also, with any women's rights issues that get brought before the court, don't you have to have kind of a working definition of what exactly is women's rights? What Then what exactly is a woman to be able to accomplish this task? And when you look at it, the, the failure to identify or to be able to define just seems ridiculous that we would end up at the highest level of court, the inability to define something as simple as what a woman is to deal with issues regarding women's rights and how are these things are going to shake out in the sports world and, and all these different issues. Well, the reason that I bring that up this morning is because that's kind of what the Apostle Paul is doing here. The Apostle Paul, in dealing with the Corinthians, he's using that same kind of logic. The Apostle Paul is recognizing that in the Corinthian people, there are some people that have some confusion in dealing with the resurrection. Not with the resurrection with Christ. That was well attested to and obviously solidly believed. But with their own resurrection. Uh, the Jewish faith had some similar problems. The, the Jewish faith had a group called the Pharisees and another group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees denied that there was a resurrection and the Pharisees believed in a resurrection. So this was always a point of contention for them. Well, apparently within the Corinthian church, there were some people that were having a struggle. Not uncommon in the New Testament. In fact, the Apostle Paul would write to Timothy and at that time recognized that Timothy was going to deal with some people that were saying that the resurrection had already happened. When he writes to the Thessalonians, he's going to clarify some things about the resurrection so that they're not confused about the resurrection. And in dealing with the Corinthians, he does the same thing. He says, look, some of you obviously are believing or stating that there is no resurrection. In other words, there's not a resurrection for us to look forward to. And he is going to argue against that and talk about the reality of resurrection and what all that means to the Corinthians, what all that means to us in our faith as we live that faith out with Christ. So that's what we want to consider here this morning is that resurrection reality. What does it mean to us? What does it mean to our life now? What does it mean to our future that we look forward to with Christ. Well, as we look through this passage, and it's a fairly lengthy passage, we want to try to get to six aspects of this resurrection reality. The first aspect that he deals with that will help us kind of define exactly what they're wrestling with is we want to look at the problem. The problem is found in, in the first seven verses, verses 12 through 19. And what he does as he goes through that passage is he uses a lot of uh, if-then logic, right? He's going to say, if this, then this. But uh, sometimes these words um, are implied even if they're not there. So kind of recognize the logic here. He says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Skip down a little bit. It says, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And then if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. 
He keeps banking one thing on the other. If this is the case, then this has to be the case. And, and so what he does is he's uh, got our resurrection very closely coupled to Christ's resurrection. He says, look, if some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead, well, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus isn't re- resurrected either. But Jesus clearly is risen from the dead, and so our resurrection is valid as well. And so the problem he defines is this. Some of you are claiming that there's no resurrection from the dead, but clearly there is because Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And what would be the point of Christ's resurrection from the dead if it didn't impact our future? As we hope in Him, we share in that resurrection. We participate in His resurrection of the dead. How does that impact us then? He says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, our preaching is vain. Remember, we talked about that word vain back in the first couple verses. It means uh, without a cause. It means empty, hollow, pointless. He says, look, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then our preaching is vain. Why would we be doing it? The Apostle Paul is the one doing the preaching. He says, why would I continue to preach it if, it, if there's no resurrection of the dead? Then why, why do we do this? Why do we gather? Why do we continue to teach? Why do we focus on it if there's no future in it? There's no, if it doesn't mean anything to your life. He says, it's, it's in vain. Our preaching. But then not only is his preaching in vain, he says also your faith is in vain. We're kind of used to vain faith in our culture. We've got to be the first culture in history that actually thinks that you can bring something into being just by believing it. But we are. Our culture is quick to that. Well, if you feel that way, then that must be your truth or your reality or your... we got a lot of that foolishness going on. But you know what? The fact of the matter is, if something is wrong, my believing it doesn't make it right. If something is false, my believing in it doesn't make it true. There is something called reality. And that's what we're considering here this morning is this, what is the reality in regards to the resurrection? And what does that mean to my life? What does that mean to my faith? What does that mean to my future? And the Apostle Paul is saying, look, if the resurrection is not a reality, then it really doesn't matter how much you believe it. Your faith is vain. Your faith is empty. Because it's not trusting in something that's real. The only time that faith is a benefit is if you're trusting in something that's real. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, look, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then our preaching is empty. Your faith is empty. He uses another word a little bit farther down the passage. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Your faith is futile. It's not accomplishing anything. It's not doing anything for you. In fact, he goes on from there to to explain that a little bit better. He says, you're still in your sins. And not only does it affect that, but it affects those who have gone before us. Because he says, what does it mean for those people that believe the same thing you do that have already died? I've got some people that I'm kind of looking forward to seeing again. And it really comes down to this one thing. Is there a resurrection from the dead or isn't there? The Corinthians, they had the same hopes. And he says, everybody who is dead in Christ, who believed Christ and died in that faith, well, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then there's, they're gone. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have, have perished, he says. They're, they're gone. This has huge consequences. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus isn't resurrected either. You're not going to see any resurrection. Your beloved ones who have gone before you aren't going to see any resurrection. Our faith is empty. Our preaching is hollow. Uh, Let's just go on with life and forget all of this stuff. But that absolutely is not the case. But that's see, that's the problem. The problem is, in dealing with this resurrection, we've got a lot on the line. 
And then he goes from dealing with the problem of the resurrection into dealing with the pattern of the resurrection. Um, it says in verse 20, he says, But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Now, we see kind of two patterns actually in here. One pattern that he talks about is the pattern of comparing Adam to Christ. Adam is who got us into this sin, and Christ is the one who takes it out. And the Bible occasionally makes that comparison. It points to Adam as in the consequences of sin that we experience because of his rebellion against God. And then it looks at Christ through his obedience, what Christ rescues us from. And so there's a pattern in that. But then there's also a pattern between Christ and His resurrection and us in our resurrection. Now, in the first one, in the comparing Adam to Christ, the Apostle Paul also does the same thing in the book of Romans. In chapter 5, he would say this, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So you see, he keeps taking Adam, Adam through one act of disobedience through one sin plunged all of humanity into sinfulness. All of humanity into condemnation. All of humanity into unrighteousness. Christ, through His one act of obedience, rescues us from from those same things. He provides us righteousness. He provides us life. He provides us uh, forgiveness instead of that condemnation that we'd be under through God. And so we see that pattern. One act by Adam starts the problem. One act by Christ takes the problem away. Provides forgiveness. But then also we see the pattern of the resurrection. He keeps using this word a couple of times. The word first fruits. It says, but if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then farther down it says in verse 23, Christ the first fruits than at His coming of those who belong to Christ. This is an important principle. You see, the Jewish people had an offering of first fruits that they would give to God every year. When the harvest came in, they would take the first fruits, the first fruit of their harvest, and they would collect that and they would take and give that to God. And the idea behind first fruit is it's an offering of thankfulness. Saying, God, thank You for this fruit, this first gathering that I've been able to go out and gather from the field. But second aspect of it is faith in more yet to come. Notice it's not just the fruits offering, it's the first fruits offering. In other words, it's just the first of all that's going to come in. So it's recognizing that God, just as You gave us this first part that we went out and gathered, and we give that to You, we know that out in the field is a whole lot more of it. Well, when it talks about Christ and His resurrection from the dead, it said Christ is the first fruits of those resurrected from the dead. In other words, we've got to be thankful for Christ's resurrection. He overcame death. But the reason we're super thankful is because there's more yet to come. Just like with the harvest. And what is that more yet to come? The more yet to come is our resurrection. The same way that He rose again from the dead is the way that we will rise again 
from the dead. Well, then he goes into kind of a bigger picture of it and explains to us what is the whole plan. In verse 23, notice he says, but each in his own order. God has a plan here and an order of the way things are going to take place. He says, Christ the firstfruits, so He's the first one resurrected from the dead. Then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when He delivers up the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ is the first one. And then when He comes back for us, He's going to resurrect everybody who has died that has believed in Him. And then comes the kingdom and the resurrection will be completed and it will be handed over to God. It says the same thing pretty much to the Thessalonians. Actually, just a little bit more detail. He says, "...but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope." Now, why would they have no hope? Because they're confusion about the resurrection. You see, resurrection gives us hope because it means that we don't have just what's in this life before us, that there is more after death here and that we go on to something even better. But He didn't want them to sorrow as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Okay, fallen asleep is referring to people that died. Notice what He says. When Jesus comes back... He's going to be bringing the people that died with Him. The Bible tells us to depart from the body, which is death, is to be with Christ. So if you're a believer in Christ and you die, the moment you die, you go to be with Christ. Your soul, your spirit, you. And then it says when Jesus comes back, He's going to be bringing with Him those who had fallen asleep in Him. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So he's laying out his plan. And then he says Christ is the first part of the resurrection. And then when he returns, those who have died in Christ will be resurrected. Those who are still alive in Christ will be caught up to be with him. And then will come the end of the kingdom. In fact, he kind of lays out the rest of the plan is that everything is in Christ and then Christ is in God and God is honored and glorified. That's the plan. So then he moves kind of from the plan. He's going to get a little bit more argumentative again here in the sense that he's got more reason to take stock in this. And part of the reason is the picture. The picture. Because he refers to baptism. This is one of the most difficult passages or verses in the entire Bible as far as understanding what in the world he's talking about. One of the words that's translated here can be translated like 12 different ways. It all depends on the context of what he's saying. In verse 29 it says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Now, the word that's translated on their behalf, it can be for, it can be in view of, instead of. There's just It can mean a lot of different things. So it's really hard to know how to interpret it. At first reading here, it can look like, uh, well, if somebody's died that wasn't a believer, maybe I can get baptized for them and that somehow would make them a believer. But you know what? That would go against everything else that the New Testament teaches about in Scripture about baptism. Because we're saved by... 
faith. In fact, Paul, even earlier on talking to the Corinthians, he says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you guys. Baptizing wasn't his priority. Preaching and establishing faith was the priority. Now, baptism is something that we do out of obedience, and it is ultimately important, but it doesn't save you. It's the faith that saves you. And my being baptized for somebody else, especially if they're already dead, doesn't ignite faith in them. It doesn't uh, impact their eternity at all. And so we know that it can't mean that. So does it mean in view of the dead? There's over a dozen possible interpretations of this passage. And none of them, none of them that we can actually speak to dogmatically and say, well, this is definitely what it means. But at the same time, we don't want to just dismiss it either. It is there for a reason. Part of it, I think, is lost to us in history of our understanding of what exactly he was trying to get at. But you know what we do know about baptism is that baptism is a picture of our salvation. As you're lowered into the water, it's a picture of Jesus' death and His burial. And as you're raised out of the water, it's a picture of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And it's a statement that this is what I'm believing in. I'm believing in Christ. I'm trusting in Him. That through His death and resurrection, He overcame my sin. And so now I am one with Him. Romans chapter 6 makes this very clear. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. You see, the Apostle Paul, if we could get rid of some of the ambiguity of the passage, is at least saying this, if there is no resurrection, then why are we getting baptized? Because baptism is a picture of the resurrection. Baptism is always saying two things. I believe that Christ died for my sins and rose again from the dead. And I am making a choice to be united with Him in His death. I am now dead to my sins. And I am now alive to God. That's what baptism is a picture of. And so he gives us this beautiful picture. When we put our faith in Christ, we get to participate in a very physical way. Not just say, yes, I believe in Christ, or raise my hand, I believe in Christ, but actually enter the waters and picture ourselves going under and coming back up, uniting ourselves with the death and the resurrection of Christ. The Apostle Paul says, this baptism makes no sense whatsoever if there's no resurrection. The picture that we go through points to the resurrection as well. But then also the prosperity. In verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. I don't think that's a light statement. I think the Apostle Paul is talking about his own personal experience here a little bit. And he's saying, look, I face suffering every day for his faith in Christ. He did. He's going to go through imprisonments. He's going to say, what was it, five times, he says, I was beaten with a 40 minus 1 by the Jews. The Jews were allowed to whip you 40 times just to make sure they didn't miscount and whip you too many times. They whipped you 39. So five times he was whipped 40 times. That's 200 lashings. He, he said he'd been beaten uh, with, with a cane, beaten with a rod, more times than I can count. He said, uh, I've been stoned and left for dead three times. Lived through those. And so he'd, he'd gone through imprisonments, shipwrecks. He says, I go through this suffering every day. Now, the reason that we point out all those things in his life is because he's going to say, why? If there is no resurrection of the dead, why am I doing this? As he said earlier, my preaching would be in vain. In fact, he went a step further. He says, not only would my preaching be in vain, my preaching would be a lie. 
And you know, when you think about it, all these apostles that preached, that's what they would have to be. They would have to be liars because they all stood up for the resurrection of Christ. We saw the resurrection. In order for them to be wrong, they have to be liars. You ever think of that? It's different than us. Like, I can stand up here and preach about the resurrection all day long and be wrong if it was wrong, which it's not. But I would be wrong, but I wouldn't be a liar because I firmly believe it. But you know what? The apostles couldn't be that. Because the reason we know there's a resurrection is because they said they saw it. So they didn't have the option of just being believing something and being wrong. Lots of people throughout history have died for religions that were wrong, but they firmly believed them. The apostles, I think, would be the first people in history that died for something that they knew was a lie, if it was in fact false. You see, it would, that lie would have had to originate with them. They would have to be not only not mistaken, they would have to be liars. Now, what does he gain from it? You know, because you could kind of look across our society and you could find people gaining from it. There's, there's people out there that are teaching all kinds of things that are collecting offerings in five-gallon buckets and driving huge fleets of cars and living in uh, mansions galore. Even me. You could even say, I gain from it. The, the church pays me an income, supports the ministry here. So even in a sense, I gain from it. But the Apostle Paul is saying, what would I have to gain? I die every day. My, I went from being the one that was progressively climbing the ladder and rising quickly to the top of, the, of leadership. I went from somebody that had power and prestige and popularity to being the one who was the scum of the earth and, and hunted like an animal. In verse 32, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? So Ephesus is a place where the Apostle Paul end, ends up in a riot. These people riot to try to get rid of Paul. They're, they want to get rid of him and his teaching because he's preaching the, the gospel and people are coming to Christ and they're throwing away their idols. The guys that made the idols don't like that. And so they get everybody rallied up against Paul. And so Paul says, why would I fight with the beasts at Ephesus, so to speak, if there's no resurrection from the dead? What am I possibly gaining? And you'd have to look at the Apostle Paul's life and you'd say, you're right, he's not gaining a thing. He's not going around collecting in five-gallon buckets, these big offerings, and he's not driving a fleet of cars. What is he getting for all of his labors? He's getting imprisonments. He's getting beatings. And eventually, he gets put to death. Now, where's the prosperity for Paul? It's all in the resurrection. If what he's telling us is true, he gains the world in the resurrection. If what he's telling us is false, he has lost everything and will lose his life for nothing. You see, that's what the Apostle Paul is telling these people. He says, you guys don't believe in the resurrection. Everything that we have is the resurrection. That's our whole future. That's, the, that's not only part of our thing. That's not only part of our belief. That is our whole thing. In fact, his, his conclusion, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are of all people most to be pitied. And then notice at the end of verse 2, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He says if there is no resurrection of the dead, if Christ is not raised, if we're not going to be raised, then you know what? Let's close our books. Go home early. Just go out and get everything that you can out of this life because that's all there is. Go out and find whatever enjoyment. Do whatever your heart's desire. 
Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die, and that's the end of it, so might as well. And you know what? You wonder why all of our crime rates are going up as we push a secular society. You wonder why suicide rates are going up. You wonder why drug addictions are going up, because so much more and more of our society is getting this idea that there isn't anything beyond this life. This life is all we have, so might as well just get the most out of it that you can, and if you don't like it, just pull the plug. It's hopeless. The Apostle Paul is saying all of our prosperity, all of the benefit, everything that we have is in that resurrection of the dead. And we have hope like crazy. We have a glorious life, but it's the next one. Lastly, he leaves us with a proposition. Now, what is a proposition? What he proposes for us to do. It is uh, the command that he finds for us at the end. So then because of the reality of the resurrection, what should we do next? He says in verses 33 and 34, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. The quality of your life still matters. Why? Because the resurrection is a reality. Because the resurrection is true. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Now, if there was no resurrection, why not go on sinning? It wouldn't really matter whether you sinned or not. It just Because this is just all there is. But he says, with the reality of the resurrection, stop your sinning. Guard your character. For some have not the knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. We know that with the reality of the resurrection, there's a tremendous hope for us in the future. There's this great thing to look forward to. Life isn't just limited to the here and now. And so what should we do? Well, this is his proposition to us. And what do we do? We guard our character. We separate ourselves from sin. We live for God. And we strive to reach other with others with the same understanding of the gospel that we've been given.